His grace is indeed amazing. Please rise as we read God's word together from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, which concludes chapter 1. Hear the reading of God's word. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, oftentimes your word is just that, a a double-edged sword. May your word pierce our hearts. May your grace be a balm to our souls. Take these words, carry them to those people here this morning. Mold and shape them. Make us more like Jesus this day. Be gracious to us. Be near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I like to work on a team more than I like to work alone. Part of that is how I'm wired. Because I get energy from people like you. I get depressed when I'm locked in an office or a small space all by, by myself. I am more ready to participate in the team. And I perform better in teams. I have a wide array of reasons as to why I like that and how I could prove that to you. But that's not going to be overly beneficial for us here this morning. But there are some of you who also do better when you're alone. You perform better not working in a team because you don't have other people's opinions telling you how to do it or why to do it. You just set out for a goal and you accomplish a task. That's great. There's a real large part of me that wishes I was more like that. However, each of us is wired somewhat differently. Each has a role, a significant role to play in the success or failure of a certain activity. On a football team, there are many roles. And we could argue these points to the nth degree. A quarterback has a different role than a wide receiver or a running back. And it has a different role than the offensive lineman. 
But it's there, the offensive and defensive linemen, that often don't get the credit that they deserve, for it's there where the attack and the game really is won or lost. But it's there where they meet the very fundamental part of the game, the nuts and bolts, the blood, sweat, and tears, if you will. It's where the rubber meets the road, and they push up against one another. The resistance is there. Roles are important in any group or activity, whether it's a football team, a church, a company, or a family. Roles are significant. And we enter, at, enter back into Malachi this morning, and there's a great shift from last week, and Nate did a really great job for us talking about the first section of Malachi. But now there's a great shift from this wonderful beginning of God's love for us, right? That God loves us just because He loves us. And now there's a really big shift. And the role of Malachi, the role of the Old Testament prophet, then begins to show its colors. You see, because the role of the Old Testament prophet is to proclaim and to reveal and to show the message of the Lord to God's people. He is that voice, that mouthpiece of the Lord God Almighty. So as much as Malachi is saying to his people, the Lord loves you just because He loves you, now there's also truth. There's also some more reality to the situation. And it's here where Malachi begins to press in. The Lord begins to press in to the character of His people and the character of Himself. The message that the Lord has through the prophet Malachi to the people of God really is almost like an offensive lineman punching a defensive lineman. It's that kind of force, isn't it? Or a punch to the gut like a boxer would have, or a, a kidney punch. It's not grazing us. But this is hard to hear. The prophet says hard things to his people. The Lord says hard things to the people. And the prophet is relaying this message. The prophet is to proclaim the word of the Lord to his people. And often in the Old Testament, that message and that role is met with a lot of resistance. But he pushes nonetheless. And we feel this tension, even as we read these verses here this morning, didn't we? Ooh, that's, that's hard to hear. That's... That's not the way we normally talk to one another. We try to glance off the issues, don't we? We don't like to to get into the weeds and the mess and the muck and the mire. But the people are going in one direction. And the Lord wants to steer them in another. They've gotten off course. And He's attempting to steer them back onto course. Back in the ways which they ought to be going. This is what the Old Testament prophets often do, and this is what Malachi is doing. You've gone astray. Come back into the fold of God. Come back and understand who you are. Come back and understand who God is and just how much He loves you. But often this message is done with just straight facts. Old Testament prophets, whether major or minor, use facts. Cold, hard facts. And what are the cold, hard facts of Malachi? For us, fact number one, the Lord loves His people. We saw that last week. Fact number two, the Lord is holy and righteous. We see this over and over again, even in the words that we read this morning. The prophet declares God 
as what the Lord of hosts. There is none like him. Fact number three. The Lord demands and deserves our very best. Fact number four. The people have not provided their very best. Fact number five. The Lord loves his people. President Jimmy Carter, some of you remember Jimmy Carter, some of you don't. But Jimmy Carter had a unique pattern. I don't know how many times he did this, but it is a documented fact that Jimmy Carter would go to average, ordinary American families and he would stay the night in their house. Can you imagine? I, I can't imagine that that would be the case. But let's just imagine, imagine that, that you would be picked to have the President of the United States come and stay overnight at your house. I don't care if you voted for the man or not. If the President of the United States says, I'm coming to your house, that would be a big deal. And Jimmy Carter was known to do these things. But what would you say to him? What would you say to President Biden if he came? What, what, What kind of questions would you ask him? What kind of questions would he ask you? What would, what would that conversation look like? And I would tend to think that there would be reverence and there would be politeness and it would be something of an honor. Now imagine that you knew that he was coming to your house. You knew the day. You knew the approximate time. As a matter of fact, the Secret Service would probably give you a second to the time he was going to pull into your driveway. But imagine you knew that time and that hour arrives and you're in the yard. You're cutting the grass, you're pulling weeds, and it's in the middle of Texas summer. And I don't know about you, but that's probably about shirt number three. And then he pulls into the driveway, and you are the way you are. And you say, come into my house, we're going to have lunch together. So you usher the president into your home, and you say, okay, just hold on, here's a glass of warm tea. My wife is, or and I are going to heat up the, in the microwave the dinner from last evening. I hope you find it enjoyable. As a good host, you would never, ever, ever do that. You certainly wouldn't do that to your enemy. You wouldn't do that to your very best friend, and you wouldn't do it to the President of the United States, and you wouldn't do it to the Lord. But the Lord, as it says in verse 5, and as it puts it, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We would put the very best food, perhaps we would even pay to have it catered if we knew the president was going to come and stay the night in our house. We would have cold tea, unsweetened tea, just saying. We would have cold lemonade and hot coffee. We would have good food, good drink, and we would honor him and we would respect him. And we would roll out the red carpet for him as he is worthy and as he deserves. We wouldn't be out in the yard. The yard work would have been done last weekend. The weeds would have been pulled. Perhaps we would have been paid somebody to cut our grass and to trim our bushes. Because the president is worthy of that. And the Lord is worthy of this as well. In verse 14, the Lord says, I am a great king. He is the Lord of hosts, feared among the nations. Surely if the Lord of hosts was coming to our house, we would not serve him leftovers. We would not be in our yard clothes. And yet this is exactly what the prophet Malachi is bringing to the people 
of God from the Lord. This is what they have and are doing. They're doing this very thing. As a matter of fact, this is the very illustration that Malachi uses. If you presented these offerings to the governor, would he accept them? And the answer is rhetorical. And the question is rhetorical. Of course he wouldn't. He's not going to accept a blemished sacrifice. He's not going to, he's not going to accept your leftovers. And now the Lord confronts the priest and he confronts the people. In verse 6, he says, By doing these things, you despise my name. They despise the Lord's name by offering less than what the Lord deserves and demands. But the priests retort with the question, How? How have we despised your name? I don't understand. I don't get it. How have we despised the name of the Lord? It seems that we can take some liberty and understand the rationale of the people and the priests. We have no use for the lame sheep. We have no use for the blind animal. They're of no value to me. They're of no value to us. Well, I'll give it to the church. Or at least now the priests can offer a sacrifice and they can do what they do. And if you know anything about the sacrificial system, the priests and the sacrifice would often be their food. So the person giving this lame or weakened or blind or blemished sacrifice... And I'm reading and coloring in between outside the lines, and I get that, but I think it's pretty accurate that they would say, okay, it's not of value to me, but at least the priest can offer a sacrifice and he can have some food. He can have these things, right? I'll give them the meat and they can be fed. It's it's a win-win, right? I don't have to deal with this blemished sacrifice. I don't have to deal with, with that part of my story. And they get to sacrifice and they get to eat. So... I don't have the burden, and they have the benefit. It's a win-win, right? Everybody wins. Everybody wins except God. Everybody wins except for God. At the heart and the center of the Jewish worship is sacrifice. The reason for sacrifices is because it was a tangible sign. A tangible sign of the wickedness and the brokenness and the rebellion of God's people and what it means to enter into the presence and to approach a holy and righteous God. God ordained sacrifices in order that we, they, could approach this holy God. But they were to offer unblemished sacrifices. The best of what they had. They were to give the very best of their flock and their fields. But to offer blemished sacrifices pulls at the edges of the Lord's holiness. It cheapens the covenant. For all intents and purposes, God does not deserve our best. We're not that bad. A sacrifice with a little blemish is good enough. Right? This is what Malachi is speaking into the lives of the people of God. This is what the Lord is seeing. You are offering me not the best. You are not offering the things that I demand and deserve as the Lord of hosts, as the holy and righteous God of gods and Lord of lords. But we must remember something before we go any further. What is at stake here? What's really at stake? What's what's happening here? Why is God so upset with the priests and the people of God? What's the big deal? Who cares if the lamb has a little black spot on him or her? At the core of this prophecy, yes, even of the Old Testament, is the gospel. 
at the core of the sacrificial system established by the Lord is the gospel. The gospel which unashamedly admits and acknowledges the brokenness and the blemishes of us. And our need for an unblemished sacrifice. You see, because they point to something. These sacrifices are pointing us to the ultimate, the holy sacrifice. They're pointing to Jesus and saying, we need this kind of sacrifice. We need this man to enter into our lives and to wash us of our blemishes. And if we say we're going to present this tangible sign of who Jesus is, and he's lame and blind and blemished, what does that say about who God is? That's not who God is. He is holy, and he is righteous, and he is perfect, and he is the right sacrifice. And so they're cheapening grace. They're cheapening who it is and and who he is and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish The gospel then is about God and Jesus and the gospel is about the people understanding their need of a Savior. An unblemished Savior to reconcile themselves to this holy and righteous God. And then at the heart of the gospel is what we saw last week, that God loves His people. He loves so much that He did not spare. He did not spare any expense He did not spare any measure or any relationship in order to accomplish this reconciliation between a holy God and a blemished people. On this side of the cross, it's easy for us to see the message of the prophet. It's easy to see the holy and the righteous Lord of hosts became the spotless sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. Whereas they were looking forward, we now look backward on Jesus as this perfect sacrifice that not only allows us to approach this holy God, but to be drawn in, to be adopted, to be called a son and a daughter of this holy and righteous Lord of hosts, to be brought into his family. This then is the holy sacrifice, isn't it? That Jesus, the Son of the Lord, took on flesh and was sacrificed on a tree in my place. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what's at stake when we offer some kind of other sacrifice. So this day, we cannot stray far from the cross. For it's here at the cross where this prophecy takes on life. Where it comes to bear on our lives. This is, very, this is the very reason that the name of the Lord is great because He is gracious and merciful because he humbled himself as a spotless, holy sacrifice. Why? Simply because he loves you. Nothing more, nothing less. He loves you. In verse 11, we're told two times just what this means. It means that his name will be great from the rising of the sun to its setting. And his name will be great among the nations. This love, this sacrifice, this unblemished, humble sacrifice and love for you is why his name is great and will be great from the setting of the sun to its rising and throughout the nations. This is the Lord's aim. To have his name be great. To have his honor be great. For him to be acknowledged as our Savior 
And indeed, our catechisms understand this, don't they? I would dare to bet that most, if not every one of us in this room, I think, if I were to ask you what is the chief end of man, we would all say to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end is to glorify God, and this is what the Lord is demanding His glory. And when we offer something less than that, we cheapen His glory, and we tarnish it. I came across a summary of what this glory looks like from uh, one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. It's summarized by another author, another author, and I want to provide that to you now. God elects his people before the foundation of time for his glory. He creates humankind for his glory. He chooses Israel for his glory. He delivers them from Egypt for his glory. He restores them after exile for his glory. He sends his son to confirm his trustworthiness and so the nations will glorify him in his mercy for his glory. He puts the son to death to display his glory. He commands his people to do all things for his glory. He will send his son a second time to receive his glory. And at the end, he will fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Summary? We then are to glorify the name of the Lord of hosts. But there's a fundamental issue at stake. There's a fundamental issue at stake here in the context of Malachi and even for us as well, I'll argue. This fundamental issue is where the gospel plays its role. The issue is when we, like the priests, are confronted with the aim of our existence to glorify God, when we're confronted with this, to glorify a holy God, the fundamental issue at stake is oftentimes we misunderstand and we don't get it. Not intentionally, I would venture, but we often fail to see. When confronted by the Lord with questions, we reply like the priests. I have not defiled you. I have not tarnished or blemished your name. We fail to see. They were the priests who were busy doing the work of the Lord. They were doing the things that they were prescribed and and told to do. They were sacrificing. They were taking sacrifices from the people. They were putting them on the altar. They were doing the things that Levitical law was telling them to do. How have we despised your name, O Lord? How have we dishonored you? How have we not given you the glory? We are doing the things that you're telling us to do each and every day. And yet here the prophet comes and says, no, you've got it all wrong. We don't get it. The fundamental issue for them is a blindedness. The blindedness to their hearts, to their motivations. And so I wonder how often are we blinded by the same? How often am I blinded by the same? This to me is the fundamental issue at stake in Malachi chapter 1. We're serving. We're doing the things that we're supposed to do. We're generally pretty good people. When we serve, who gets the glory? When we love, who gets the glory? When we do the things that we're supposed to do as good Christians, who gets the glory? 
It's easy even to preach or to teach in any capacity. It's easy to serve and to love in any capacity with wrong motivations. This thing begins to shine a light on who we are, on who our God is. When our attitudes are for our glory, our comfort, our power, our image, our status, it shines a light on the blemishes that we have and who we are and our need of grace. But our attitudes then should not be necessarily just of comfort or tradition or perception or image, but rather, Lord, I seek to glorify you in all I do and all I say in you and you alone. Any other focus, any other motivation, any other thing puts a, a blemish on the sacrifice, on the service, on the love, on the preaching, on the teaching. If it's not done for the glory of God, then it is not worthy of the Holy God. I wonder, however, if you were asking the question, if I am often blinded by my own sin and desire for myself to receive glory, what does it look like or how do I know when my heart is going in that path? When my, when my heart is, is not in the right direction? How do I check myself or how do we check each other? How do we hold each other accountable and myself accountable? What do I need to be doing? How do I give glory to God? What does that even look like? That's a lot of church talk, but I'm not quite sure I understand what that means. Give glory to God. Salvation from a holy and righteous God is a gift. It's a gift of grace and it's a gift of faith. Something that you don't have to earn. We know this, right? Something we don't have to earn. Something we didn't pay for. Yet, it costs the Lord everything. Something that doesn't cost us anything costs Him everything. It costs Him His life. Simply because He loves you. And that is a gift in and of itself. He loves you. So He gave you everything. He loves you, so He sacrificed Himself. He loves you, so He gives you grace. He loves you, so He gives you mercy. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. To the point that He took on death, even death on a cross. And then when the, real, when the realization of this reality begins to enter and settle into the very fiber of who we are, what does that do for us? How then do we serve? How then do we love? How do we act? How do we, how do we treat our spouses? How do we treat our kids, our grandkids? How do we treat our parents, our grandparents? How do we treat our Lord? When we realize that the Lord has given us everything of Himself, is there anything that should be held back? Is there anything at all that should be held back? The priests in the time of Malachi were warming up last night's dinner for the president. They were giving the Lord the things that did not cost much. They were giving the things that were not of quality. They were giving the things that were not a priority. There's a story of a missionary. I don't know if it's true or not. It sounds true. It sounds good. Probably true. There's a story of a missionary who received a care package in the mail. Maybe the Purcells have received care packages in the mail when they were in Russia from a founding or ascending church. 
in the care package. You open it up and you rip open the package with excitement and in it you find used shirts and pants. And then you tear in there and think, this has to be some kind of mistake. And then you pull out a mason jar and there are tea bags. Well, the tea bags have been dried and they've been placed back in the, mission, in the, in the, the ball jar. Used tea bags. The intent is, well, I have no use for them. Maybe the missionary could use them. I have no need for this little bit of money. I'll give it to the church. I have no need for this set of clothing. I'll give it to the church. I've gotten my use out of these things. I'll give it to the church. Or, I've used up all of my resources and my talents and I don't have time for the church. I've used up all my finances. I've used up all my resources, whether that's financial, whether that's service, whether that's love, whether that's teaching, whether that's hospitality. And what's left over, I might be able to give to the church. This is where the rubber meets the road for us, just as that offensive and defensive linemen clash with one another. This is where it clashes for us. This is where Malachi begins to pry and prick and the scalpel begins to go into our hearts, right? Am I giving to the Lord what the Lord deserves and demands? Am I giving the leftovers? Am I giving the used tea bags, the used clothes back to the church? Do we give our best? Do we give our best to the Lord, to His work? Or do we give out of ease and convenience? Do we give the first fruits or the last fruits? Do we give the first fruits or that does or that which doesn't cost much or anything, use tea bags. You see, the Lord deserves our very best. And when we don't give Him our best, we do not glorify His name. When we don't love our spouses, when we don't forgive, when we're not patient, when we're not kind, when we don't love our neighbors, when we don't honor, respect, and love our parents, our children, our grandparents, our grandchildren, we tarnish the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ because He honors us and loves us in ways that we can't possibly imagine. He took nails in His hands and His feet to honor you and to glorify His name and to show His love. Or maybe we can ask the question this way. Do I value what God values? Do I love the way God loves? Do I love who God loves? Giving glory to God means understanding the mission of the Lord. To bring in the broken. To bring in the outcast, the hurting, into a fold of grace and mercy. That's the Lord's mission. And this is how we glorify His name. Giving glory to God means loving what and who God loves. Because this is how Malachi started it all off. God loves you. And now in turn, because God loves me this way, now I love. And I give back to the Lord because He's given everything. And so I give everything back to Him. I now seek first the kingdom of God. 
because he sought me. Ananias and Sapphira fell into this trap, right? When they sold their property, they were to give the total amount to the Lord, but they kept back just a piece. No one will ever know. Nobody will ever know. But Peter says to them prior to their death that they were not lying to men or women. They were lying to God. Where are our motives, I wonder, this morning? Do you ask that question of yourself ever? What are my my motives? Why do I do what I do? The only way I have found to be able to check my broken heart and our broken hearts and our broken motives is to understand our posture. The only way I know to check my heart is to understand my posture. Not as I stand here six foot five of me, but my posture before the cross. Do I stand with my held held high as I gaze upon my sacrificed Savior? Or do I fall at my knees? And do I give Him glory for the way and the manner and the extent and the height and the depth and the reach of His love and grace for me? We fall at our knees. And it's when we're on our knees that we understand grace, that we understand what it is to give glory to our God. If we imagine ourselves as holy and righteous, then we've misunderstood. It's when we gaze at a Savior who bled and died for my motives and my heart, where the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, and the Savior of sinners bled and died as the holy spotless Lamb of God is where we need to find ourselves. If we imagine ourselves great and mighty, consider the cross. If we imagine ourselves as holy and righteous, consider the cross. If we are imagining ourselves unblemished, consider the cross. It's at the cross where we understand what Malachi is talking about. It's at the cross where we understand what love and grace looks like. It's at the cross where we understand what it means for a holy God to love his people. Because it's on the cross where a holy sacrifice was given because of deep and immense love. There is no other God. There is none like Him who loves like this. There is no other God. There is none like Him who is holy like this. His name is great and is great among the nations because He is holy and He is righteous. Consider the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You that You took the cross for us that you are holy, unblemished sacrifice in order that we could be brought into the family of the Lord and be called sons and daughters of the King. And so, Lord, may you work in our hearts and our lives to consider the cross, to consider how much you love us and care for us, how you've shown us grace and mercy each and every moment of our lives. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise. Go before us, we pray. Go before us and may we glorify you in all we say and do. To your glory, we pray these things. Amen.